0: Football on off the ball. With Sky. All the football you love in one place. Across Sky Sports, BT Sport, and Premier Sports.
1: So, if you have any interest in coaching, the Mike Quirk podcast is definitely well worth a listen. It's available weekly on the OTBGA podcast stream. Mike, I'm sure many of you know, is currently coach of the All Ireland winning Kerry footballers. Every week, he's talking with some of the leading thinkers and voices in the world of coaching. And I was listening to one of them recently—a fascinating conversation with the former Kerry captain Fionn Fitzgerald. He's also a lecturer down in MTU in Kerry, and. It was a really interesting conversation around the work that Fiona is doing with his PhD around relative age effect, biobanding maturation rates of academy players in the GAA it is a fascinating subject and we wanted to explore it a bit more in the show this evening uh, to do that i'm joined by dr laura finnegan who's lecturer and researcher in talent development in the southeast technological university and also marco sullivan who is head of football at the norwegian school of sports sciences and also lectures in skill acquisition laura mark uh, good to talk to you
2: hi thanks for having us on
1: uh,
3: yeah, thanks very much. I'm, uh, greetings from Stockholm, and I'm, St- I'm in Stockholm at the moment. Uh,
1: so. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Uh, Laura, I know you've done a huge amount of research on relative age effect. Uh, for the layman, what is it?
2: It's an overrepresentation of players born just after the cutoff point for a particular sport. So, in most cases, it would be January. So, often in particularly in male team sports in early adolescence, we will see. Um, a lot of January, February and March children being picked for representative squads or, or A-teams, whatever that looks like in your sport.
1: Your research has been mainly around football, but just how prevalent is it then as you've looked through the academy systems right the way up to the senior international squad?
2: Yeah, my own research is, is football-based, but it's not a phenomenon that's completely unique to, to football. It's present in most team and and invasion type sports, and particularly where we're making direct comparisons between one player and another. So yeah, the interesting thing about the relative age effect is that it fluctuates and it changes across the the lifespan of a sport. So for example, we've seen from research that it actually kicks in quite early. Um, There's been studies in in French football that it starts at at seven or eight. So there is a a parental aspect to this too, that maybe actually parents are a little bit hesitant about putting in their, their later born kids and, and maybe kind of missing that missing that summer. So that can happen there and it can come the whole way through a pathway. It tends to really come to the fore in terms of selections. So where selections take place or, or are made, well, that's where we will see this emphasis on the early born players. Um, why? Well, I suppose, it, again, it comes back to, to, to culture. And if the culture is, is win and, and win at all costs, mm. well, then we will tend to select the early born boys but in terms of of some of the stats we know from the research there's, there's a relatively even spread across the year and in the relative age effect research we talk about quarters so quarter one being january february and march right up to quarter four which is october november and december so there's a general split it might be up 24 percent or 26 and 25 percent here or there but it's a relatively even spread but I would have um, done a, a research piece a few years ago about the Emergent Talent Programme and there was almost 40% of, of boys selected for that were from these first three months of the year. Almost 75% born in the first half of the year compared to 25% in, in the second half. And that was perpetuated like like it's been shown elsewhere as well that the more players that are competing for places that this will get stronger. So if, we, if I took the the DDSL clubs, for example, out of that sample, 44% of all boys there were born in the first three months of the year, the boys from the DDSL that were selected onto ETP. And that continues in that vein. I mean, we uh done a study recently looking at all of the, the men's and, and women's Euros over the past few years at different age groups from uh, 17, 19, and senior. Again, at 17, we see that 46%. Of the the boys are are born in the first quarter of the year, and only seven percent born in the last three months. And the stats say just six times more likely to reach an, an under seventeen squad, international squad, if you were born early in the year. That reduces a little bit to nineteen. It's kind of three times. Um, more likely and then at senior there's different patterns it's not it's not as as prevalent there You're still, it still tends to have that that effect comes the whole way through from underage but it's not as stark as some of the the earlier stats
1: Well even I was looking at Stephen Kenny's latest squad for the last internationals of 24 players uh, 14 of them were born on or before May the 1st and the other 10 were born in the final two-thirds of the year. And I know, obviously, date of birth is a very blunt instrument. It was interesting, though, to see that of the players who were born in the final three months of the year, there was only four of them, but John Egan and Evan Ferguson, both of their fathers, were footballers. So there is. I think when you look at the stats, a natural advantage there as well. And the other two were Seamus Coleman and Cuevin Keller, who are going to be playing at maybe the highest level and are maybe just freakish in their talent that they've also managed to break through.
2: Yeah, this can be negated, by by other maybe um advantages that you might have so we might find that actually if there's some quarter fours in there they tend to be biological early maturers and that really when we come into a, the academy system it becomes more about your your timing and your tempo and your 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 rate of maturation in comparison to your peers if you are an early maturer you'll you'll get you'll tend to get ahead um there was a, a recent study done, and there were there were no late maturers in the under fifteen and, and under sixteen Irish underage squad. So, um, but again, when when we look at, and it's interesting you brought up the the international teams because often what's happening we have to look at the full pathway because sometimes coaches are selecting from an already skewed pathway, and that's why it's really important to. Even utilise something like the the uh, player databases, like the benefit of, of having something like FAI Net or FAI Connect to be able to show that across the full spectrum of the sport at, at all levels. At, um you know, under 13 national academies, uh, two international teams and across the League of Ireland as well. Mark,
1: from what you've seen, is it as simple as seven, eight-year-olds going to a club for the first time? And like for an eight-year-old who's born in January, there's almost well, it can be eleven months between them and the guy born in December. There can be a huge difference in height, in weight, in maturity, uh, in skill level, in the amount of practice that they put in, and that that initial interaction is that they are one of the more talented players. They're given more time, and that just continues for the, re- the rest of their playing days.
3: Um, I think we have to give it some context here because uh, Laura's brought us some really very important uh, research, particularly research specific to Ireland. And I mean, really, if we're looking at the system that seven year old will say is going into, it's basically a linear chronological system uh, under seven, under eight, under nine, under 10, etc. cetera. But the individual that is participating in that system, is basically a non-linear biological complex system, and this means that its development is non-linear. While the development of the system itself, the the, the player development system, the different age groups that they play, in, that's quite linear. The individual is very, very non-linear in their development. And um, Laura touched on the words there, like maturation. You can have a seven-year-old, even even a seven-year-old. We're not don't don't even have to go to. Um, uh, teenage growth spurts and things like that. You can have a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old that has probably biologically you you could look at as nine or ten or biologically it could be six. So we have we can have vast differences of two, three, four years biologically between um people between uh, individuals. But we're we're the issue is also is that we must remember is that we're very over constrained by the the um the chronological linear system. So uh, that's 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 the context I think we really need to give to these because it's very easy at a seven, eight, nine, if you're uh, biologically older, it's quite easier to look quite good.
1: Could you talk about that, Laura, the maturation rates? Because it probably is taken it to that deeper level again as to how you would work that out in terms of research
2: well the gold standard for here was was um skeletal x-rays but um now we, we, there are there are ways of, of doing that in terms of taking mid-parental heights or a calmus roach is a method of doing that and there is a, a, a database of that with, with the margin of error but we can tend then to identify whether um kids are are early on time or or late matures particularly in that kind of round puberty time. again you could have you could have two kids playing against each other at at under 13 and and maybe there's a spread across that that pitch of 5 to 6 years difference actual maturation differences. So so that's really really important and again th- there was a really large selection bias in favor of of selecting these early maturing players and uh, it's we call it the, the unicorn almost there's there's very it's very rare that you will have a late maturing player that that's also a quarter four. They, they tend to be spat out of the system really early if they've ever got a chance to to engage in it at all. Um, so the relative age effect and biological maturation are, are are different. They're different concepts. Sometimes they're kind of wrapped up together. But, so when you but talk are,
1: about, uh, about some of those development squads not having any late developers, it, it's not necessarily that they're f- the final three months of the year, but they are more likely to be from the final three months of the year.
2: Yeah, they're they're different. Uh, they are different. The biological maturation is is an inherent genetic. So if if your parents went through their their growth spurt and and the the process of puberty earlier, well then you probably will too. So about seventy percent of us are are on time, and the others are are outside of that. But again, there's been studies across academies in the UK, and that by the time it gets to maybe under seventeen or under eighteen. The, the, the late maturing boys just didn't stand a chance in terms of that continued selection process, whereas the relative age effect is about the calendar. And it really hits its, its peak in terms of impact, really before maturation. And. Um, and after that then that kind of mid teenage years biological maturation seems to take over in terms of a real driver of of selection but it's still present the the domino effects of or the relative age effect are still there and and we see it so um the the quarter four kids are, are more likely to drop out as well because again it's it's so those early born kids they're more likely to be captains, they're more likely to be selected and that's all because this I suppose advanced maybe uh, psychosocial cognition behavioural development, decision making and and they're getting all this positive feedback about their football performance and, and that's increasing their confidence and increasing their motivation to, to come back training as well so there are the two things there that we do need to consider.
1: So, Mark, is it too simplistic to say that for 30 percent of kids who come in, those late matures, that we're not giving them a chance, whether to even certainly not to get to elite level, but even in terms of participation?
3: Um, yeah, I think, the, the, again, it's it's still the issue is that we have these such chronological systems and um if, if you're having systems that are selecting children early, the best way for your system to work is to deselect as many as possible as early as possible, because then the survivors are the ones that are left with you. So then you're actually narrowing lar- narrowing the playing pool. For me, uh, Laura's work is is more around the uh, relative age effect maturity, and my work is in is more towards in uh, research has been into pedagogy, and designing learning environments for children and our work cross has some good uh, crossover, actually. But for me, a lot of this, what you're talking about is, is a question of pedagogy, a question of coaching, a question, you know, if if some kid, if some uh, uh, club wants to select early and another person says they don't, we end up with this polarised debate because often the selection is very much as low as Sometimes it's, it's probably based on a lot of maturation and uh, kids born early in the year or whatever. But if if... If we want to, like, instead of having this polarised debate, for me, the question is, what is your understanding of human learning and development? That's the key question here. And that bleeds into my work and Laura's work, which is around maturation and development as well and around around pedagogy. So they're the real questions that we really need to be asking, I think, in this debate. What do you think, Laura?
2: Um, yeah, I suppose to, to follow off on from that, it's about maybe what this looks like on the ground. And I know, Mark, hmm. you, you've made some strides in, in AIK and your time there to try and, and remove and reduce the relative age effect.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. The thing is, it's it's what what I, where we found in particularly in this in the eight to 13 section was that we, we had um, quite mixed groups. We'd have 100 kids in each age group and we'd have probably about divided into five, six groups but it was no there was no selection and the groups were formed by communities by friendships etc and all we encourage the coaches to do is to not have cemented groups because there's fantastic potential in cha- having different constellations when they're playing games and yeah part of that is having the better players playing with the better players at certain stages but also it's not something that's cemented so it's not something you do all the time you try to mix it because The Part of this debate could end up being interpreted by some people as, oh, we need to um, buy a band, we need to have just certain maturers playing. No, because there's also great learning opportunities for children to be playing against players that are probably a bit more mature than them. So I'm a very big big advocate for um, trying to having different constellations within your group as much as possible so it's not cemented teams, particularly in the younger age groups, because we really need to keep children in the in the in the sport and we need to it's a great opportunities to help them with um simple values like how do we make each other better which kind of comes in handy when you're playing elite football
1: how does that work out then in practicality if you have a training session and you have 10 year olds training with 14 year olds or 10 year olds training with 7 year olds in terms mm-hmm. of out on a pitch, making sure that the seven-year-old actually gets involved and it isn't just the 10-year-olds dominating everything. Oh, I,
3: I see. Uh, well, the thing is, we have, in each age group we, uh, we had, when I was at AK, we had eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, but in each age group was was 100 kids. But then we had extra training where kids had the opportunity to pl- play with a year older and a year younger. And we tried to keep it as random as possible when we uh, divided them up into groups. And uh, so that took away a lot of the uh, social status, you, you could say. So... And then, as they got to around ten or eleven, there was opportunities for them to train a couple of times a month with uh, some kids with a year with a year older. So there was there was never anything cemented about any of their journey. They were never part of my group of players because I'm at this level or I'm at the top level. So I only train with these. So we tried to
1: keep the system as
3: open as possible.
1: From the sounds of what you're saying, Laura, the late maturing players are basically starting to be left behind from day one.
2: Around the time of puberty, yeah, absolutely. Um, what's What's interesting as well is that this, this all manifests differently with okay. women's soccer as well. Um, and as we know that there is a, a sports science research gap across the board in terms of, of female sport. Um, and in terms of the relative age effect of sport, there's been varied results, I suppose, for, for females, and it's quite inconclusive there. So. Um, in that UEFA study that I that I referenced, in terms of of all of the European Championships, so the the under. 17 level for boys, as I mentioned, it was it was really clear, 75% of boys born in the first half of the year. But actually, for the the females, it was 57%. So it doesn't manifest itself the same there. So there's still actually a lot of learning to be done there. Why in terms of, well, is it the, the depth of competition hypothesis that some propose that actually if there's less people putting kind of upward pressure for selection, well, then there will be a more even spread, of course, across the quarters. It, it might even be somewhat linked to development stages for girls there as well, because girls are going through puberty on average about two years earlier than boys. So often all of that has kind of leveled out before the selection takes place. And there's, we're seeing a difference even in terms of, of kind of psychosocial functionings there too, whereas being, if you talk about maturation, being an early mature, seen as, seen as a real status symbol for, for boys and these late matures might you know, select something else to do. Whereas the research is conflicting with with girls that actually some girls are, are really shy about the changes in their bodies compared to peers and, and they are the ones that might deselect from the sport. So um so yeah, we're we're still picking this apart and, and learning a lot about some of the mechanisms behind what what is driving this because we know that the relative age effect exists in non-physical domains as well. So there is a relative age effect in, in education. And kids born um, in that kind of, that, that September, or October, that the relatively older kids in the classroom will do wh- will do better in standardized tests as well. So it's it's much broader. People tend to lump these two concepts together because we think relative age effect is just about size and, and, and physical development. But because we've, we've seen it in education and we see it in, in chess and, and things like that, that might not have the same physical domain, it's important to just look at them separately too.
3: Mark, that's the issue with technological systems.
1: <laughs> Mark, if you look at the, in, on the sporting side, uh, like there's the participation point, which we might get to, but on the elite side and trying to identify and bring more of those late maturing players and keep them in the system so you have more options as you go through the various age groups. If you look around Europe, are there, are there countries who are leading the way in this? Uh, you know, where, where do Ireland rank in terms of how we're trying to progress?
3: um well, I I can't comment uh, on on Ireland, but I know that um we had the Dutch FA over visiting us um in 2019 and uh, they sat with me and a few friends from a research and development department we did some coaching together with them and they went back and they did um they've started now this 40 club project relatively based on our work and um it's trying to keep. As many systems open in clubs as possible and now there's a few um of the top clubs in holland have, have uh, joined in with that uh, group also so so there are um countries uh starting to work with these ideas i know you've you've heard probably stuff from belgium as well but the thing is you can't really copy and paste what <laughs> somebody does in ireland and what you do in belgium or what you do in australia or wherever but um it is it is something, I think, because there was some It was a really powerful research came out um I think it was twenty twenty, and that they did um there was research done on twenty nine top academies in the world, I think it was, and the over the turnover rate every year of players was around thirty percent in and out. So even that system itself <laughs> is is probably slightly malfunctioning as well. So, um, yeah, it's definitely something. But I go back to it. The thing is, this discussion needs to be based around our understanding of human learning and development. Because um, I think polarised debates, and both Laura and I have been meeting people and we've had contact for years. And the debate is very polarised, Laura, about early selection and this selection and not selection. And even though I don't think we should be selecting kids early, but we really need, I think we really need to start talking about you know, what's our understanding of human learning and development and how are our systems over constraining the opportunities for children to participate, to perform and reach their potential.
0: The World Cup, on Off The Ball, covering the good, the bad and, well, the ugly of what's happening in Qatar. Neymar can push the ball between
1: your legs because he just sees things. Subscribe to the OTB Football Podcast feed now. So is that a a coach education plan that needs to be put in place Mark because I think the majority of, of coaches say at underage level are probably parents of children who go in and want to help out and want to volunteer and want to do the right thing. But also are thinking about picking the best fifteen players for the team uh, eventually, and are looking at every player and analyzing their skill set. and And I'd imagine ninety nine percent not thinking that deeply about relative age effect. About well, actually, you know, while well, that player right now uh, might be one of the smaller players, look at his dad, and he's six foot five. He's probably going to end up in six foot five at some stage, and has the skill set, but isn't been picked on the team and been probably ruled out of it far too early. So that that sounds like something that needs a much greater. Uh, process from the very top of the major sporting organizations
3: and i think yeah i think it it is a it can be a coach education um uh there can be a coach education solution or partly a solution for this but i think it should be across all sports and maybe maybe have it something that's in schools as well because um you know this debate is 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 so polarized around dude sport i'm finding that 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 we really 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 need to start talking about human learning and development and how humans learn and develop and how our systems are constrained so yeah i i think you're right it is it is a coach education thing possibly i think i think that would be a good way to start but uh remove and that just takes you a bit away from the x's and the o's and things like that and gets down to the working with the human individual that's standing in front of the individual coaching
1: laura the... go on laura yeah.
2: Yeah, I agree there with the with the education piece, and and sometimes there's more to it in terms of where this education fits best. So I know that it is something that's tackled at maybe the the, the elite um, youth license, but actually, if we're seeing that the relative age effect is is coming in and having an impact from before these kids are are in, in double digits, well then we actually need to try and get it into the kickstart ones and kickstart twos because those are that that's the qualification that those coaches have but sometimes education alone is, is hitting it head against a brick wall if if the culture is still very much to to be the winning under 10 coach um and, and yeah there's other probably admin heavy uh, suggestions that are that are often thrown out there in terms of the relative age effect in terms of whether we should rotate Age bands, So it's not always the first of January, but actually it, it rotates in, in nine months. So across the developmental stages, you will probably have experience in being both the, the uh, youngest and the oldest across those bands. Um, but I absolutely would see the, for me, a, a key role would be that the flexibility of our development pathway systems, whatever language that that we use to support this non-linear development. So it's not just the focus on our underage League of Ireland squads, but actually we need to think broader than that. We need to think about, you know, how do we keep the second tier and those engaged with clubs still ready to make that step up. Um, And I think in terms of the education, there was a, a, a study for UEFA last year across seven European countries and 80% of, of Irish clubs recognise that growth and maturation status of a youth player can have an impact on perceptions of his or her talent. So like to me, I think the education is, is there to some extent, but maybe impeded by the culture. But probably what we don't get enough of in terms of education is is actually kind of trying to bust some of these talent development myths mm. and like and Boston. that might be well the idea of when we can actually id to use that term uh, like when when we can id talent and um and actually irish irish clubs rated the highest of, of across the countries in Europe, saying that they could they could that is, is possible for most players between the ages of, of six to 12 um, to be identified. So if we have that mindset that actually we can spot players early. And again, almost 50 percent said that their talent and ability is stable and, and progresses at that linear rate. Well, then, of course, it makes sense that we're in this environment where we're selecting kids early because that's what we think works. Um, and I think that you know we we can do it, but the stats don't bear that out either. I think five percent of the under fifteens have have got an international cap, so there's a lot to consider and and sometimes we don't talk about the quarter ones enough like we're we have a, a vast overrepresentation of quarter ones at the 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 mid teenage years, but actually it's it's more level when we come to seniors so where have they where have they gone as well have they not have they not had enough? Challenge maybe that our that our quarter fours have had throughout their development. Well, I might play a so, couple of clips
1: then, if if that's all right, Laura. Just from I mentioned Fionn Fitzgerald and the podcast he was on and the work that he's undertaking in MTU and Kerry around relative age and biobanding and maturation rates. So he was talking about the types of players who are being sent into the intercounty academies. I think they had a particular focus, obviously, on the Kerry academy. Uh, here's what they had to say about that.
0: Often and club coaches send their three or four best players to the trials. Mm-hmm. And then you have your three or four best players and you've, I don't know, 100 players maybe in trials or whatever it is over a period of time. But what we love to look at is actually the players that are coming to the trials. I suspect that maybe the the pool of players coming to the trials is, is already potentially um, biased towards early maturing players, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is started by the club players. Because, you know, inevitably... Your your club coach sends his three or four best players, who possibly are the guys who are the early maturing guys, and and yeah. running the show for want of a better word, like you know. So yeah, you, basically what it looks like, Mike, in in this from what we've seen in this is that, and similar to soccer and other sports, that you need to be extremely um you need to be really good, and and really determined. And you need to have something special if you're a late maturing player, okay? Yeah. Or you need to have coaches who are really open to uh, keeping the net wide and so on. And in fairness to coaches. When we kind of showed some disinformation back to them, um, we'll say the second year there were, there was there was a lot of kind of you know, a lot of interest in it from their end and they were definitely thinking about it a little bit differently, which which was interesting. Like, and they were Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I don't think that would come as a massive surprise to anybody, uh, Laura Mark, that club coaches send their three biggest, strongest players and they're not at fourteen or fifteen when they're sending them to the academies thinking, Well actually this guy here might be the better player when he's 18 or 19. They're sending the best players there and then. Uh, Fiona also talked about something you touched on of, of maybe those uh, quarter one early developers. Are they being tested enough? So as an experiment, they changed their training game. So the early maturers were playing against each other and the late maturers were playing against each other. You just spoke about the results they had from that.
0: So the, the first of all, the late maturing guys said, this is brilliant. So essentially, like normally I'm playing corner forward and I don't get any ball in the game. And if I do, I, I can't the, all the big guys are running the show. And uh, basically, I, I can't I can't really do what I was able to do today. So mm-hmm. I was able to take on man, the 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 link play between our games is brilliant. So like there was a number of teams that kind of came out. And this is just very anecdotal at the moment, because I, I need to completely go through um go through it from an analysis point of view. But like skill wise, there was a noticeable difference in skill in the late maturing game. So that so. I suppose there there was an awful lot more passing interlink play communication with those players. Um, the, the physical aspect was taken out of the game. So in other words, it was at a a way more appropriate and mature level. So everyone was like, I'm playing against, I'm marking a guy who's kind of at my own level or my own Mm -hmm. grade. Um, so so that so there were some of the kind of ideas from their perspective and they, and they just found it a really positive experience. They're like, it actually arms me more now when I go back training with the with the full group next week, I feel more confident and I definitely kind of it's it's made me think that way. The early maturing players and the opposite end, who are normally the big guys that were, were controlling mm-hmm. the game, they found it really, uh, really, really difficult. To, some of the kind of quotes were like, I, I haven't played in as hard a game in, in, in I don't know how long I, I couldn't run through the middle anymore. We t- there, every time I got the ball, there was someone on me. Um, mm-hmm. like I couldn't kick the ball Like so this kind of side of the thing so the physical aspect was one then they were finding it like tactically that they were struggling a little bit more at times and this is not ever and anyone but it's just a, kind of a, as a general the feedback yeah. from maybe talking to maybe 8-10 to 10 of these players from either group uh,
1: That was Phil Fitzgerald there talking to Mike Quirk on his podcast uh, Mark would that suggest then that for those bigger, more physical, uh, early maturing players that they're not being armed for actually when they get towards senior level that because they are bigger probably from a very young age that it's it's almost all too easy for them for too long
2: yeah possibly um and that that can be physically and and technically and tactically but it can also be psychologically as well and it can also be that that maybe lack of of resilience from from challenge and, and setback of maybe having it you know, kind of progressing quite quite easily through and not learning to deal with, with such setbacks. And what Fionn's talking about there is, is the process of of biobanding, where instead of chronological age teams or groups that through this process, you know, perhaps a Calamus Roach method where we can see what percentage of your adult height you are. So, you know, at, at, you might be... F- 80 to 85 or, or 86 to 90 and that's the that's who you're put up against with and those teams um yeah it's a it's a it's a part of the toolkit i think um i think it's it's a good tool to, to maybe have a look at players and what we can even do is we've often looked at fitness test results and, and scores and actually use them to compare against people of, of your own maturational level to give kids a kind of maybe a, a good oversight into where they are um, comparing it not to necessarily people in their age group but of their their maturation level instead. So there's other ways of, of doing that. The, the, the Dutch FA have explored with the average age tournaments where actually you have a maybe an, an average age of, of a 13 but you could have 14 year olds on it. You could have 12 year olds on it as long as the, the average age matches there. So just they're all just parts of the toolkit. Like I I would be a big proponent of let's just give all the, the kids the, the, the experiences that they can the the ten thousand experiences rather than the rather than the ten thousand hours. And again that that's development and it's it's challenge and it's it's fun for kids as mm. well. It's some the Danish FA are are exploring with their it's called their their two plus one plus one where they have clubs will have their, their regular two hours training. They'll have one which is um, uh, maybe a, a skill development hour where clubs can join other clubs, or where regional development officers can come in. So that can be a, a specific hour, and then the the last plus one is just the kids' hour. That the gear is left, whatever the kids want is left on the side of the pitch, and it's all for the kids. To play and, and they're feeling autonomous and that helps with their their motivation and, and keeps them engaged in the sport so there are more creative ways of doing things than maybe our traditional view of youth sport
1: mark the reaction of, of the players there uh, seems to feed into exactly what you're saying that more much more player-centered approach so that that bigger more dominant players you're actually looking at their individual game and maybe their spatial awareness or their vision or their teamwork and uh, that side of it and trying to improve that rather than just looking at them when they're 14 and dominating and assuming that that's just going to carry through for the next five years.
3: Mm. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's I think yeah, we're back to the idea again of just trying to identify at snapshots of times. These are really big issues we have and i really liked what laura said there i think it's important that we remember that a lot of these interventions like the one we just the really good intervention we just heard there they're just part of of a of a big puzzle of a very big and complex puzzle but um i would urge people that that work with younger children now not just even in the in the in the growth spurt area of the teenage years that even younger children try and keep mixing constellations of kids and give them different challenges as, as much as possible. This is what we've been doing since 2017, and um, we've had more kids staying in the game, and we've actually grown the club between 2017 and now. Grew with about 400 players in a, because kids are staying on as well. So it's just giving them different challenges and being smart about it as well. You know, it, it's kids already know who's the best player or what if they want to call him that so um, yeah there's lots of there's lots of uh, stuff there to work with but there's no one solution because if there was we'd just be doing it all doing <laughs> yeah. it.
1: I, I think you touched on something earlier Laura about maybe the greater impact on, on players and children in terms of very early being exposed to that notion of the best player and the captain and the confidence that's instilled in that best player as a as a young child leading on to a teenager and the player who maybe doesn't have the talent in that and we put such an emphasis on sporting talent uh, in this country that that they end up uh, being left behind not just on the sports field but maybe in other aspects of life been, rather than uh, benefiting from being around sport, actually being damaged by sport?
2: Yeah, I mean, kids will go where, into situations that they feel autonomous, like they have some say in what in what's going on, but that the, the social sphere of it as well and that feelings of relatedness and, and the other one feeling perceptions of their, their own competence and that, you know, they're they're able to take on the challenge that you're providing them with as well. So like those are three really key things that we need to try and embed in what this youth sport looks like to, to keep them in the sport. When we often talk about um, about sport or sport being great and universally brilliant. But actually I, I, I don't know that it organically happens like that and, and that everybody experiences that either. So I do think it is something that we need to be cognizant of and, and that communication and that communication might come with from parents as well and you know, getting them on on board with this. But that that club culture um and that really integration of efforts between the, the club coaches and and parents as well i think it's really important
3: i think Laura there's also um, the issue of this maybe <laughs> or kid that's early identified or just looked at early as the star player in this that becomes a kind of a stat- mm. status badge and then there's there are risks of it being a psychological ticking time bomb as well you know so there is the other mm, s- yeah. the other issues because uh, as I've always say is that like when we look at when we're looking at Doing early talent ID and stuff like that. Talent is a graveyard of evidence. Nobody sees the dead bodies, and uh, it's very much a game of survivorship bias. This, so we always look at the survivors in systems. We, you know, and um, so we have to be very careful as well. Is that yeah? You may have some young one or two young kids that are really good or look good or whatever, but the, the development of a status can also have very very negative effects for that player as they grow and mature and maybe grow very slowly at certain point of maturation and others pass them out.
1: Uh, Fionn Fitzgerald was saying that the Premier League academies, when it comes to that biobanding and changing the setup at training, they maybe do one week a month of that, but it's regular training the rest of the time. If If there's coaches listening in, Mark, who are looking for advice, is it to... Is it to go and experiment to try different things, try different setups, not uh, give different environments for young players? So it's not the same players who are the star kids, the star players standing out all the time. That there's a, a spot for everybody.
3: Yeah, I think we really have to. I mean, I, I always say as many as as many as possible, as long as possible, and in a good in as good environment as possible. The thing is, we have to ask ourselves who is the sport for? It's for children and young people. That's who it's for. And that's 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 our starting point with this, you know. So, you know, who is the sport for? We need to start there as well. Who is it for? But I would suggest try and keep your system open, give as many different challenges as possible to the the children, because it's all going to change and it change it can change very quickly between individuals.
1: All right we got to leave it there uh, Mark O'Sullivan head of football at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences and Dr. Laura Finnegan lecturer and researcher in talent development at the Southeast Technological University thanks a lot for joining us Thank, Thank you. you Football
0: on off the ball with Sky all the football you love in one place across Sky sports BT sport and premier sports.